This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. Cows are in the pasture. We're here with Ed, uh, Ed Cowser over at Osprey Data. What's going on, man? How you doing, man? Good to be here with you guys. Uh, where, thanks for having me. Where are you based out of again? I know you told me last week when we talked so, on the phone. So uh, Osprey Data is headquartered in California, um, but, you know, we focus on Texas, so hence the Texas CEO. Um, you know, <laughs> I've worked with uh, the backers behind this company for over 20 years, Houston Ventures. Um, okay. I am strategically located uh, halfway between the Eagleford and the Permian uh, out there in the Hill Country. But Got you. Can't cut the cord on Houston. I lived here nearly 20 years, so uh, always here often. So I didn't know that uh, Houston Ventures was the backer of Osprey Data. We know Houston Venture guys uh, yep. really well Chip and, uh, Chip, Chip and Fred. Fred. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great guys. So, so, okay, so that gives me a little data point to talk about, but let's – why don't you give us a, a quick overview of what Osprey Data is, what's the product, what are you guys doing, and then I want to dive into your background and the background of the company after that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're a technology solution uh, in production. Uh, we turn issues into precision action uh, in the story. Uh, at the end of the day, what you want is an effective, uh, more effective uh, process or workflow uh, than has been taking place in the past. So what we do uh, to enable that in production is we ingest the digital feed from the wells, artificial lift in particular, and the entire production infrastructure, and uh, you know mark that data. It's un that data. It's unstructured, uh, so you label it. Uh, it's not like a payroll system. Mm -hmm. um, so you label it with subject matter experts uh, working at the what we call our rapid label highlighter, and you give these curves meaning. Um, and it goes into a machine learning uh, environment uh, where when it sees those curves again, it's like, I've seen you before. You're gas locking in an ESP. And to get to some of those issues with the pumps, the downhole pumps, the artificial lift devices, um, you know, it takes some deep learning. And some are just uh, very shallow. You're, you're recognizing them based upon extremes of pressure, volume, and temperature. So depending on the issue you're solving, uh, it's either simple or pretty complex, but once you recognize it, it turns into a workflow um, and enables, uh, you know, more efficient operations. So is it uh, production optimization by using artificial lift data? Artificial lift part of data it? is the main source of the data. Okay. Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, if folks are not uh, familiar with you know, the artificial lift world as much, um, you know, you can't just call it a pump. A lot of them are pumps. But some artificial lift scenarios have no moving parts like gas lift. Uh, so, so hence the term artificial lift. For those who are not familiar with the different types of artificial lift, could you kind of highlight those real quick? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about the production curve, um, a good well is going to have free-flowing uh, scenario for a while, you know, formation pressure. Um, and then you get into kind of well design and uh, operator philosophy. There's a few options immediately. Um, the highest volume option is called an ESP, just like that pump on grandma's well out in the country, but just much higher volume, an electronic submersible pump. It's a, a spinning whirling dervish, 30 feet long with impellers, 
And they'll stack those things uh, three at a time, sometimes depending on the volume requirements and how far behind they are in their quarterly results. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you can catch up quick. It doesn't change the rev reservoir uh, pressure and its uh, you know decision to give it up, though. So um, depending on how fast you draw it down, um, you may not have that ESP on there very long. Or if you're just using one in the stack, it might be a longer term. So... Um, and then the other ones uh, would include uh, gas lift. Uh, gas lift has no moving parts. There's mandrels uh, in the side uh, of the hole, you know, mm -hmm. casing, tubing, and it's bubbling up gas. It's a micro blowout. So the tubing uh, or the weight of the column uh, is such that formation pressure isn't pushing it enough anymore. Mm -hmm. So you just make a little milkshake and lighten the load. Um, and if you do that precisely, then you're enabling the momentum uh, that the formation is uh, wanting to push it out at, and you're also not over-injecting. Over-injecting could cause it to actually produce less, yeah. but definitely you're using more gas. And then there's a few other options there. Um, uh, plungers, uh, gas-assisted plungers, still a mechanical device uh, filling um, you know, uh, a pump, uh, but instead of being operated by a sucker rod, it's operated by that gas lift, the pressure from underneath. So you still have this optimum pressure in the formula you're, you're looking for, but you also have the mechanical device. And then at the end of the production curve, the most common, the one everybody sees driving out in West Texas or in Bakersfield or wherever you happen to be in Michigan, you know, the old pump jack, you know, beam pump. And at the bottom of that sucker rod, uh, is a pump, a ball and seat valve, you know, and mm -hmm. as that head comes up on that uh, horse, you know, it's pulling a sucker rod up and that metal ball, like a big ball bearing, floats up with the pressure from underneath it. And as it pushes down, then that ball seats down. Harbison Fisher was the old line one. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of competitors now that make those. Some are just grounding down like Q2 and some make the whole thing, you know, like Lufkin and Weatherford. You know, yeah. So. Yeah, so we uh, when we were talking last week, you know, we were talking really about the efficiency gains, and you know, you look at oil and gas now. People have to really these companies really have to look at, hey, how can we acquire and operate assets more efficiently? And one thing that was cool about you know production optimization using Osprey data is that hey, we can focus on you know say that you have a hundred wells out on the lease or whatever that number is you can focus on the two that are actually giving you problems or are about to give you problems instead of your pumper, you know, driving out to every single well that day, he can only drive down to, you know, two of them. Is that kind of the main value proposition that you guys are pitching is just, op, you know, efficiency gains? There's a human efficiency gain and there's also the efficiency <clears throat> gain of uh, longer mean time between failures, the, tra the traditional predictive maintenance. So if you don't, push this thing to the wall, like the ESP, it's not going to fly apart and you might get, um, you know, uh, several more months of service out of it, um, more production, less pump pulls. So the human efficiency is uh, non-trivial though, uh, because um, basically you're able to operate more wells uh, per operator and operate them more efficiently. Um, so yeah, that uh, instead of, you know, that lease operator uh, driving, uh, a mail route of, Hey, I'm going to go see these 10 or 20 wells today. Um, they go to the ones that need the most attention now. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Cause I didn't know Osprey data had been around, you know, 20 years backed by, uh, Houston ventures. 
the company's headquartered in California, so that's pretty unique. But tell us about yourself, your background. Um, you came from the field, right? So Absolutely. I grew gotta, up I gotta, in the patch. Yeah, yeah. got to know the field stories. So yeah. why don't you give us the background on yourself sure. and then yeah. how you ended up in and, Osprey. And one clarification, Osprey Days has been around about seven years, Southern California, oh, seven. Okay, not Northern. Gotcha. Where if, if you're from California, you know there's a difference. Yeah, interestingly enough, we're halfway between San Diego and L.A., uh, San Diego is the only major metropolitan area with a uh, Republican uh, mayor. So <laughs> where, you, where you guys at between San Diego and LA? Uh, San Juan Capistrano. You know, it's a tough place yep. to work. You know, uh, programmers can ride uh, beach bikes uh, to the beach at lunch. But yeah. <laughs> it's a great place for creative uh, folks and yep. a lot of great minds there uh, recruiting out of LA, just south of Irvine. So yeah. Um, and we have people scattered, scattered all over. We've got uh, folks in Canada and on the East coast as well. So. Got you. So tell me about, you know, how'd you get your start in the oil field? So where where did it all begin? (laughs) A lot of it depends, you know, uh, it's environment. I mean, you grew up in West Texas, the whole, you know, where you're from thing. But, um, yeah, I grew up in what was the Austin chalk at the time is now the Eagleford. And, you know, you're just looking around like, what can I do? You know? So, I grew up in, you know, those kinds of jobs in the oil field. My dad was an engineer, so I did, uh, he had a surveying business. So we staked oil wells when I was a kid, and then I helped him calculate the, you know, uh, bearings and coordinates at night to do the drawing. So we had the field work and the calculations. And then, um, you know, as soon as I could, I was in oil field service on a, you know, lease crew, casing crew. And then uh, when I was 17, I got a commercial truck driver's license, which you could do with your mom's signature because your dad sure as hell wasn't going to sign it. If you had parental approval in those days, you'd be a commercial truck driver. So I was delivering chemicals out to the rigs and there were no forklifts, you know, that strapped on those cool ones that go on. It was just, you know, so that's how my dad bought in and goes, oh, you're going to work your tail off. You know, hundred pound bags of gel. Yeah. Sacks just lifting them all day. Yeah. You get strong quick. Then I figured out. I have a, I have a story on that. So we had a company man and he was old school company man. And we used to lift up our, we had pallets of drilling mud. So a hundred sack or hundred pound sacks of drilling mud. And we just uh, lift up the pallet with the forklift. We we bring it next to the uh, mixing table and we just dump them over and mm-hmm. we had this hard ass company man and he's like no fuck y'all he's like you're not using the forklift back in my day we have to lift them so he wouldn't let us use the forklift he'd make us carry them across <laughs> location and it's like this is not efficient at all yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just because that's the way he was so yeah it, it, you think it's hard on your arms but it's your hands because you're gripping that paper bag it's got no handles yeah. and also your back you got to yeah. be balanced if you're gonna like. Yeah. You finally go, I can carry two of these. It's like, yeah. whoa, you step in a hole, man, your back is yeah. going to be crooked for a week. <laughs> yeah. Those 100-pound yeah. sacks, they seem yeah. so much heavier than 100 pounds just because yeah. they're, they're not easy to grab onto. So, yeah, so you yeah. did that. And then casing hand, too. Casing's not yeah. a, it's not a glorious job. Yeah, it's not. No, but it's a great, <laughs> you know, grind. And yeah. um, you realize, hey, you can learn more the closer you get to the rotary table. So I did those, you know, yeah. uh, worm, you know, backup tongs, and then – um, you know, uh, my first year in college, you know, talking around the dorm, Hey, what'd you do? Found one other guy who'd been a roughneck and he'd been offshore and he'd been worked off, of, worked off of South America. So after my freshman year, um, you know, this has been a while, um, I drove to Houston and took the yellow pages and looked under O for oil, <laughs> called every company, <laughs> nothing, including, you know, the reference from this guy who was my friend. Um, and, you know, I called my folks and I said, I'm driving in New Orleans and we'll stop at every town along the way. I got a job in Lafayette, worked yeah. offshore. 
on uh, Amico platform out there out of New Iberia. So, and yeah. then I loved offshore after that. It's just safer. There's food. You know, it's a good thing. <laughs> food's probably the main selling point of Absolutely. offshore work is that you get to eat good. I was laughing when I first went offshore. I was just, you know, I was used to land rigs in West Texas, and then you go offshore, and all the offshore guys, like, they're just, like, overweight, and it's because they don't have to work near as much, and they just eat all day. And then I start spending time out there, and I'm like, okay, I get it now. You it's just true. Eat. Fish yeah. on Fridays. And, you know, if <laughs> the first platform I was on was just all docks. It was 24 drilled but uncompleted wells. And we were on a drilling rig, and you trip pipe pretty fast when there's not, you know, much resistance. So we were tripping pipe like 24 hours, and, you know, it was a 12-hour shift. But I'd get up in the middle of the night and eat that fourth meal. Yeah. <laughs> go back to bed. Yeah. 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 I think uh, there was one time I was offshore for a month, and the food wasn't that great, but the bake, the baking, the pies were so good. Yeah. And so I just ate pie for 30 days straight, and I put on a solid 15 pounds. and. <laughs> like disappointed with myself as <laughs> it's like this is that's not much different than you normally eat. no it's not i just i just yeah crush chick-fil-a them. cookies i just crushed Morios before we recorded this podcast <laughs> so it's not that out of character for me so you went offshore yes. worked offshore for yeah for a while. so you learn a lot you yeah. know basically you know first production and then drilling and um you know then it came time to you know get out of a&m and i'm looking around i'm like man, I want to be associated with the drilling machine for the rest of my life. And oil went to $6 a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> so I was walking across campus my last semester with, you know, this professor I admired. And I'm like, what would you do? And he said, uh, you should read Megatrends. Um, so uh, it's an information age. Uh, went into semiconductor, was a brand manager for a wafer transfer robot at a company that had an oil and gas product line, Ruska Instrument, it got bought by GE here in Houston. Okay. And so, when was this? Um, that was in the eighties. Yeah. Okay. Early eighties. Okay. And so, you know, so um, this is like, I I'm mean, a pretty, boomer, man. this is, <laughs> this is like pretty early and, and the technology curve. Yeah. Technology was, um, you know, I mean, mainframes and all that. And I yeah. had a brother that had written software. He actually wrote the software for my brother's business and went to work or for my dad's business and went to work for uh, Apple. And I was aware, you know, Hey, this is an industry. It's, it's pretty cool. The Macs were coming out, you know, yeah. the PC was coming out, but generally, um, I was a process guy, still am, you know, and so that business, I was responsible for a P&L of this wafer transfer robot and had some of the product lines they weren't selling too. the oil and gas stuff was dead. And so instead of arguing with the CFO about what our profits were, I went ahead and implemented the manufacturing system. So I learned about, you know, all the Kanban inventory management, you know, uh, stuff you can do and the, and the people process associated with manufacturing products. And, uh, so here's, was a, here's, was a piece of equipment that was, uh, manufactured in the discrete market. And discrete manufacturing is when you can, uh, each subassembly retains its autonomy. You can take it apart. But we were working in the process manufacturing. So I learned both process and, and discrete and has been very helpful. What it gives you is a really firm foundation in cost accounting. It's like, what's it take to make this product? And now <laughs> when I look at an oil well, you know, uh, uh, and you know, read these articles uh, by these guys saying uh, it could be a manufacturing process, you know, well, it starts off with process uh, manufacturing, and it ends up, depending on where it goes, uh, in discrete plastics and all that, but uh, the raw material is the earth. 
you know, and that's what yeah. makes it interesting. It what's it makes it a challenge in our business and data science. And it, it's what creates the opportunity for those people who can create efficiencies with a, uh, a raw material that has wild variables. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I've never kind of framed it like that, but that's a really interesting way to look at it. So how'd you, how'd you end up over at, uh, Osprey's? How'd you land, you know, how'd you meet up with the use and venture guys? How did that all come about? Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I went from that manufacturing business, you know, make a long story longer, uh, basically to manufacturing software. And so over time, uh, living and working in Houston, I worked with oil field service companies, drilling companies and producers on optimizing, uh, their back office, their payroll, their financials, um, and their materials management, you know, consignment inventory downstream, all that stuff. And along the way, you know, got to know the guys in Houston that were good at that, you know, project managers and stuff like that. Um, met a guy named Trent Durr, who's on our board now. He was at Pricewaterhouse uh, implementing uh, our software at the company I was at at the time. Um, and we ended up, you know, taking a company public. He and I, I said, hey, come on over here. Um, and um, he was a services guy and I was a sales guy and we grew that company. Um, and then one of our customers was a guy named John Lee. And John eventually ran professional services for SAP globally. So the three of us were in and out of deals off and on, and Houston Ventures was in some of them. Uh, and so that's where we met Chip. And he's a, you know, very detailed guy. He knows yeah. a lot about a lot. Grew up as an auditor. So, you know, one, you can't bullshit him. Two, you know, if he doesn't know it, he's going to find it out. Yeah. You know? So he's really uh, a good guy, and he helps me validate stuff, you know, even my own thoughts, you know. So. Yeah. Absolutely. So you said that the company's been around seven years. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So did you guys, um, I mean, was that capital all raised through Houston Ventures or was it capital from California? Yeah, it was California uh, originally, and we still have some California investors. We basically have pots of investors in Dallas and Southern California and Houston. Gotcha. Um, and so when it came time to scale it, uh, that's when Chip called me. I'd was working with them some already. I was a consultant and just looking at deals and also I kind of got a change management passion. So I was working as a change management consultant in some really massive, uh, hairy deals that were organizational change. Yeah. <laughs> just, uh, you know, kept me from being bored. And then he would put these, you know, small company deals in front of me and I'd look at them, give them my opinion, maybe meet the founders type thing. And then they put this one in front of me and said, we want you to run it. Um, and I really wasn't kind of looking at it, uh, helping them in that way, but it looked interesting to me because of the oil and gas background and the second meeting, you know, they said, Oh, this headquarter in California, you know? So, um, but the truth is it works a lot of, uh, you know, software development teams are virtual. Now our chief yeah. technology offers officers in Austin. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, the Houston Ventures thing to me is, uh, you know, like a reunion. Uh, they have a really good reputation in uh, oil and gas technology. And Fred Lummis brings a lot to the table, too. Fred's yeah. very analytical, um, incredibly, uh, you know, sharp mind. And just, you know, both of, the two of them, you know, challenge me and, and help us, you know, look at the company and what we're doing all the time. So it's a, it's a small firm, uh, but they have a, a great reputation. How long have you been there now? Um, it's, uh, be three years, uh, in the fall. Okay. So, yep. Yeah. So you guys, um, were running the remote and distributed team before it was cool and trendy post COVID, huh? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Just ahead of the curve. Right. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. We were we were zooming before it was cool, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We were go to meeting in it, and then zoom. Uh, it's like, oh, that stuff's so much cooler. You know? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Liquid Frameworks. You know, we talk about all this cutting edge technology every single week, and what's crazy is that a lot of EMPs and OFS companies are still managing their field operations in Excel and on paper in 2021. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. It's such a pain. It's time consuming, and all in all, it's just really inefficient. And luckily for you, Liquid Frameworks has been making people's lives in the field and the back office so much easier for years now. Their field effects platform streamlines communication between accounting, field operations, and office management, all with the touch of a button. Now, they're trusted by some of the leading teams at Key, Basic, Stallion, Liberty, Superior, and numerous others. And you can hear from them directly at the Liquid Frameworks ConnectFX conference here in Houston on September 14th and 15th. So like I mentioned, their customers who've been utilizing the platform will be chatting about different ways that they've been able to leverage the platform to really streamline and optimize their operations. So if you're still stuck on paper and Excel, or Excel, I guess, uh, and thinking about finally making that switch, this is a great opportunity to come out and hang out with your peers and scope out some really cool tech. We've got a link to the registration page uh, in the show notes. You can just click those, take you right over the website and use the code evolve or die, no spaces for $100 off your ticket. Yeah. How do, uh, you know, you don't see a lot of uh, oil and gas tech companies based out of California. I mean, there's a few, um, you know, Geosite, Geosite's not specifically oil and gas, but then uh, ResFrac. And so Res there's, frag, yeah. yeah, there's a few of them. Um, what is kind of the reception in the oil and gas industry, you know, does that, is that a barrier at all when, you know, you say the company's based No, in it doesn't seem to be. I think, you know, just like any business, if you're physically there, it helps, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, the, I think the real question is, is do you understand oil and gas? Mm -hmm. um, and we have staffed this company from the get-go with people who really understand, um, you know, the processes. We have uh, production engineers uh, in data science who are degree petroleum engineers, uh, guys from LSU, uh, School of Mines, uh, Texas Tech, um, petroleum uh, engineers, some working in data science, some working in the field, mm -hmm. um, and others, you know, PhDs in petroleum engineering and data science. So yeah. it's fair to say, um, you know, we're pretty deep, uh, in the, in the practice and almost all of them have turned a wrench too. They weren't just like office guys, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> they didn't um, have a local pipe wrench. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, <laughs> nothing against the office engineer. It's important. You know, but, uh, you know, if you haven't count, counted your fingers before you go to bed at night, you know, I always wonder if you're, you know, looking at things, you know, squarely. You know. Yeah. Um, I know when we were talking, one interesting point was that um, we we're talking about training machine learning algorithms. And one interesting thing that you brought up was, you know, working with people in the field, you know, working with pumpers specifically. And I was talking about, you know, the it's not a myth that you have these old school pumpers, you know, they can put a wrench up to a wellhead and, you know, listen to it and, you know, just, yeah. they know, yeah, they know what's going on. And I mean, I used to do that myself with, you know, drilling mud pumps. And so yeah. that's a real thing, right? Yeah, they're triplex and, pump. Absolutely. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. You put a wrench to it, it and you, yeah. you can hear, yeah. you know, if, if you got yeah. bad valves or not. And so, yeah. um, that's always been interesting to me of bridging the gap between that kind of, I don't know what you call that, you know, that intrinsic knowledge of just knowing, you know, how do you take that and capture that and actually code that and put it into algorithms. And so you, awesome, man. It's yeah. so awesome because, um, 
It's a great question. It's one of the things I wanted to figure out, you know, when I came on board. But the truth is, it comes from the human mind and ends up in the math formula, at least in our process. I think, you know, some NASA guys, some of those guys start with, you know, hey, what shape should the curve be? You know, but we don't worry about that so much. What we do is take that person, you know, and I said on the phone, like your dad, you know, the person who's been out there and has seen uh, these wells and all kinds of, you know, conventional, unconventional shale, chalk, I mean, whatever environments, well designed matters, it changes the behavior of the, auto, of the artificial lift. And you can create formulas for decades on this <clears throat> stuff, or you can get the guy that's been in the field for decades and you can say, look at this Dynacard, what's going on? And he knows. And that's what we call labeling data. So you label it and then you verify it. And the people we label it with are those guys. Yeah. You know, so we have this thing that's easy to use. We call it a rapid label highlighter. And we, you basically uh, keep them involved um, as uh, you get this iterative uh, validation uh, that that is, in fact, what's occurring. So do you guys walk into a client with an algorithm already built or do you build it alongside them using their data as you go along? Well, their data is important because it's their wells. Yeah. You know, and we're getting back to the fact that, you know, this is not predictive maintenance from 1985, uh, which has worked perfectly since then using digital listening devices and pressure, volume, temperature, RPM, you know, torque, all that amps. Those machines are strapped to a angle iron welded frame that's bolted to the concrete floor and it doesn't move. But here, not only is the earth, you know, burping and chugging and the well-designed, the geology different, but the operator's philosophy on how to do that is different. So the well-designed, the well-bore may be different. Baker Hughes is different than Weatherford. Uh, where you perf is different. How you perf, you know, propant, you know, sand, all that affects production. Size of casing, cement job, Absolutely. all of that goes into it, yeah. So, yeah, we did a demo yesterday and, <clears throat> you know, one of the, Petroleum engineers making the uh, comment was, uh, you know, they said, how many variables are in this uh, algorithm? He said, oh, over 200, you know. So it's looking real time at data on the fly that's been labeled at 200 variables, you know. And yeah. yet the human mind can comprehend that. Um, yeah. But not one who's been doing it five years, maybe not 10, you know. And so you get those people labeling your data and then you back into um, the tweaking of the algorithm. That's when the math PhDs get involved and they start to go, okay, here's what he's pointing out to us. Yeah. This is what it's like when you're on the backside of the moon, you know, boom, boom, boom. And pretty soon, uh, then you start tweaking the math algorithm. So, um, and so deep learning <clears throat> comes into play where you take the calculated results of, you know, a series of wells and then they're a subset and then you take calculated results on those. Uh, but not all problems require that. But again, the human mind can comprehend all that. It's just that they're not guys like that walking around on every well pad. Yeah. Um, and they're leaving the wool field and they're retiring. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, the well designs are changing and what they're doing is changing. So the math helps. Yeah. Um, and it is, you know, it is self-improving, but there's a human augmented reality I read an article the other day. It shouldn't be called artificial intelligence. It's not artificial. It's math, you know, <laughs> but it is augmented by humans. So the guy was making this uh, point. It should be called augmented intelligence, you know, and that's, you know, uh, when you call something artificial to an engineer, 
you know, and, and I'm a bad engineer, you know, but <laughs> the, the first thing you're doing is you're challenging it. It's like, Hey, you know, are you saying that that thing, you know, that bot is smarter than me? And we don't like to get into that because <laughs> the human is really smarter. Yeah. It's just, it's hard to scale that person, you yeah. know, and they're going to be problems they haven't seen, you know? So. Yeah. No, I actually like positioning that it is augmented versus artificial. And that's even, you know, you see the use cases for quote unquote, artificial intelligence and oil and gas or machine learning, you know, like, um, you take a company like Novi labs, like Novi labs was never trying to displace engineers. It was trying to make engineers more productive and say, Hey, you know, we can run many more simulations than you could run, but it's still based off of, you know, human knowledge and, and variables and inputs. And, you know, when you talk about pumpers going through and labeling data, it reminds me of like Google's captures where you're like, select every picture that has a bus in the picture. Like you're training the algorithms there. Sometimes those are kind of messed mm -hmm. up because you can't tell if a bus is like, is that a corner of a bus in the picture or not? But it's literally what they're doing is you're training their algorithms to be able to identify pictures and what's in these. And so it's kind of the same thing here. It's like, hey, we can get this old school pumper and say, hey, look, you know, read this, uh, this, this pressure reading, this card. And, you know, what is that? And he's like, oh yeah, you know, this happens when, you know, something happens with the, with the rod lift and then you guys go in there and market and then your PhDs can go in and start making sense and be like, Oh, well, last time Jimmy told us that this was the issue and that's just the issue happening over again. So I think that's kind of the cool part is like the bridge between the old school knowledge and the artificial intelligence and training up the algorithms to be able to recognize those patterns. And then from there you can start having the predictive um, analytics and maintenance on the rest of the assets. Yeah, I'd be curious to know, like, how's how's the reception been? Do do people feel kind of threatened by this? Yeah, or? Man, you're 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 working through an implementation in your mind. Okay, now we've established math works. Now what? You know, yeah. which is a great question. Is and it is it a hard sell at first? Absolutely, it's a it's a hard sell because everybody wants to know if math works, and then you get the reality and some of the early companies in this like Novi labs, Kelvin, others that kind of came and went from the space. Some that are in it now left and came back. Mm -hmm. um, but it's fair to say um, it's kind of like owning a golf course, you know, and the first guy who buys it is probably not the one that's going to make the money. It's like second or third. Um, so um, this company was chugging along small and I got involved and we began to get scale. We added petroleum engineers and, Meanwhile, we're looking at, and I'm interviewing people that came and went from those companies, lessons learned, talking to their customers. Math works, but it doesn't mean it's actionable. And we do have some folks who are kind of overlapping competitors uh, in this space, and they're more process-oriented than uh, math, uh, you know, machine learning-oriented. And, and some would say, hey, you know, AI is not ready. It doesn't work, you know. And um, I would submit to you that there's a lot of process engines out there, you know, Scout, Greasebook, all the data collection. You know, mm -hmm. basically it's a work order system for oil and gas. That stuff is cool. However, are you taking action on the right thing? And that's where we come in. But you really need a, a component to enable that reception, that acceptability that is uh, actionable, that's acceptable to them. And the other thing that's unique about the oil field and and I promise you, I think about that question a lot, uh, middle of the night type stuff. Um, as a process guy and knowing the oil field to a certain degree, I would suggest to you 
that it's not a sequential process. Every morning and every day at lunch, it's a chessboard and another piece has moved. And so you need an application that's, it's not like accounts payable, you know, run a trial balance before you cut the checks, you know, it's what's happening now and what should we do with our top 10 problems? Well, we got a brush fire over here because this one's spitting up, you know, flaming paraffin. And we got one over here that has been tagging bottom. You know, you got to rank these issues and react accordingly. So, so I think the wells are chess pieces and they change their behavior depending on what's next to them. You know, so you can move the queen a certain way. The knight's always got to move this way. The pawn can have a couple options. So if you've got these three options and those f three pieces can move five different ways, what do you do next? You know, um, so. So is it, is it, is primarily focused on reducing downtime or are you also focusing on possibly optimizing and increasing production? And if so, on the latter how do you kind of get that feedback loop as to whether it's working or not? Yeah, absolutely. And so now you've touched on the three major knobs of ROI. We talked about the human efficiency, which is the one they look at last. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sometimes exciting. Other industries only have that kind of ROI. But we have uh, downtime avoidance, which has two things. Um, you're not producing while you're down, but you also have the cost of the wireline unit or the pulling unit. And you might have to have a full workover on some of these devices. Yeah. Um, and uh, then you have the cost of the repair, the replacement. So that's non-trivial, you know, with an ESP, it could be um, anywhere between, you know, 30 and $90,000 if it's down just to repair and replace the equipment and pay for the pulling unit. Um, and then you have the downtime. So, so there's that production loss, but then there's the optimization of how you're actually operating it. There's the, um, can I get closer to the target? You know, can I optimize the use of gas? Can I optimize the use of power? Can I extend the life of this equipment? We have an ROI that we go through with our clients that has all those variables in it. Uh, we estimate it based upon our algamated experience. You know, the guys that have been in production and our customer results we estimate that for them, and then we revisit that on a quarterly basis in an executive briefing. Hold ourselves accountable. Keeps our whole team on the edge of their chair, keeps their team on the edge of their chair, and we revisit it and revisit it. And so um, I think that's the only way that mm -hmm. you can get people to um, believe that it works is, one, at the front line, you know, you want that operator to be excited about using it. It's got to yeah. be easy to use and friendly and help them do their job better. They need to be able to check the well while they're running town for a can of Scully, mm -hmm. while they're coaching a baseball game. Yeah. Um, they need that kind of personal benefit. Um, but we need to be able to sell it at the executive level and the board level and talk to them about the value of the models that they're starting with that have been trained by others and the fact that, you know, their data is private, but by the same token, they are going to be improving this model, but, it's not going to be the same form in the bone Springs as it was, you know, um, you know, in the wolf camp. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have high variability between different fields and different yep. plays. Yeah. So what's it, you know, kind of a question from your background and your perspective growing up in the oil business and, you know, being out in the field, um, you know, decades ago and just kind of seeing the transformation from conventionals to then unconventionals and, you know, you go from being, um, you know, being in Worms Corner working on casing crews <laughs> to, you know, now leading a data company. It's kind of a hell of a transformation 
in the industry that you've got to witness firsthand. I mean, tell us a little bit about that because oil field looks nothing like it did, you know, back in the eighties and nineties. And, and so what do you think about, you know, just where the industry is going and, um, kind of, I don't want to say the digitalization because I hate that word. It's been so overused in this industry, but there's some cool, there's some cool shit in the industry. There's some cool tech. So, you know, what do you think about the industry moving forward and the adoption of this technology? Yeah, no, it's really exciting. I mean, it's it's uh, the closest thing to the space frontier, I think, that we have here on this planet. Um, it, it certainly uh, goes through fits and starts of innovation. Too much profit slows innovation, which mm -hmm. is kind of crazy, you yeah. know. I mean, uh, George Mitchell and his gang didn't decide to do the, you know, long lateral uh, because the oil patch was killing it. You know, he needed some efficiency, you know, uh, and that's what drives innovation. So these downturns in a weird way, as punishing as it is to all of us, you know, we might lose our damn house. But what you're <laughs> able to do when you come out of it is basically more. And, um, you know, uh, I think, you know, innovation is something if you ever decide to, hey, I'm going to sit this one out this year, this month, this company, this gig, this region, this field. Um the guy across the fence isn't going to do it. And now the guy across the fence is, um, you know, in North Africa. Uh, I mean, they're in Latin America, you know, Vaca Muerte, you know. So all <laughs> these opportunities um, go like wildfire through the services companies. So you have to have a culture of innovation, I think, to survive. Uh, the low-budget major, uh, I think, is no more. Uh, the operator who's like, hey, I'm just going to keep a couple of, uh, you know, massive fields out there producing. Um, you know, I think the competition is on the other end, and that is who can scale uh, and who can, uh, you know, pump more oil. And the competition is global. Um, yeah. These innovations are, you know, going all over. Yeah, I wish I would have had that George Mitchell reference. I remember a couple of years ago arguing with a guy from IBM about whether or not innovation happens in downturns because he didn't believe that innovation happens in downturns. And I said, well, sure as hell doesn't happen when things are good because they just say, hey, oil's $100, I'll just drill another well. And yeah. so, so I wish I would have had that George Mitchell reference because it's perfect. Like, yeah, he didn't do that. I bet that guy's not at IBM now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, and yeah. so like, it blew my mind because I was like, downturns drive innovation because you have to. Like you... Literally, our tagline for digital wildcatters has been "evolve or die," and that you have to evolve or you die. Like you he can't confused cause and effect. He was yeah. in a rising tide and it was floating his boat. IBM was killing it in the eighties and nineties. Yeah, but um, you know, after that, you know, they've been struggling. They just got like a lot of majors. You get so much overhead, it's hard to maintain, and that's why the little company can innovate and yeah. is more agile. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, when there's a downturn, there's a reason uh, to innovate. And then it creates an upturn at, at, at that company. You know, there's an upturn in the, you know, technology adoption lifecycle. That company yeah. is having an upturn because they're helping the guys that were hurting uh, innovate and operate more effectively. Yeah. So for Osprey, you know, what are y'all's goals over the next year or so? I mean, do you guys have anything on the roadmap that you're really looking to to achieve in terms of growth for the company or, um, you know, product innovation? What are you guys focused on? Yeah, great question. Um, so we're focused on North America uh, right now. Uh, 
we are, you know, talking to some uh, global producers. Uh, I, I believe in the next year we'll have some global producers, uh, both in terms of uh, U.S. Uh, producers that have foreign operations as well as NOVs. Um, and uh, I'd like to go offshore. Awesome. I'd like to get back <laughs> out there. Um, <clears throat> the, get back to your get back to your roots. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, those guys. Uh, have this uh, need uh, for remote operations more than uh, U.S. Uh, or, you know, shale producers do. But one of the things we're seeing is the evolution of this, uh, you know, op center, you know, it yeah. started with midstream, you know, Williams companies, you know, they were uh, watching the pipelines all over the place from a op center in Tulsa and then Houston. Yeah. And um, then it went to the drilling console. And so drilling got it and, it's yep. production's turn. Yeah, um, it's production's so, turn to come around. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be a brick-and-mortar building. It's a virtual op center, and the yeah. software should enable that. And your ESP expert may be in Alaska. You know, They might be in Saudi Arabia. You know, yeah. They might be in Brazil. But the guy that knows that particular pump and this particular well design should be part of the notification when it starts to have an issue. Yeah. And then he's on this collaborative, uh, you know, agile uh, resolution and the machines making a mitigation recommendation. So, uh, you know, mobile is in their short-term roadmap for us. Uh, we felt it was important to start with a scalable solution in the cloud before going to mobile. Some folks start with no mobile and, you know, it's hard to, you know, back into scalability, adoption. security yeah. and all that from an architecture perspective next, yeah. you know, so, uh, we got the back end going and it works well on a laptop and a, and an iPad, and so we're pushing uh, mobile, and you'll see that in the very near future from us. Awesome. So if you have any uh, production engineers that are listening to this show, where can they find you guys? What's the website for Osprey, and um, you know, are you on LinkedIn? Give us all that information. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's the bird, uh, Osprey. It's got the really sharp eyes that can look through the water while it's flying and see the fish underneath. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, discern, you know, you know if, if it's a fish it can catch or it's an issue it needs to dive down and solve. So it's ospreydata.com. That's awesome. it. Easy and we enough. do a lot of demos and we do uh, webcasts and we have a lot of content on our website. Uh, we In the fall, of course, the budget season, we have some promotions going on. So if they watch our website and our social media for that, they'll see us, uh, you know, on cool. Twitter and on, um, you know, LinkedIn. Awesome. Yeah, we'll uh, put links to the website in the show notes. So if you want to check out Osprey, you can find them um, down below in the show notes or just go find them online. Yeah. We'll have to get you guys on the bullpen sometime, too, so we can see the... Uh, see the platform so thanks for making the time to come on the show man that was that was great no thanks for having me uh look forward to uh hanging out with some landmen yeah interesting land <laughs> spring break. Yeah. by the time yeah. this goes out we'll have already yeah <laughs> drank all the drinks yeah let's yeah. catch the next one next yeah week. and the landman value prop is fun too you know they don't even have to have the platform we just label the data and give them there you go <laughs> basically um you know an analysis of how the last guy ran it you know yeah. so not only was it well down but why you know take it to your ops guy and hey can we run it better so they they're they have a seat at the table yeah you know? so we should drink beer with those guys awesome we'll get them around for sure <laughs> all right ed we appreciate you thank y'all yep, appreciate it very you. much I guess if you didn't know, we rebranded our Roundup newsletter to the Big Digital Energy Newsletter, aka BDE. So go check it out. We got a ton of new subscribers on that. New formatting. It looks really, really great. We love it. You get an inbox every single week. Go sign up for that. Catch you guys in the next episode. Cut, 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 cut.